Be seated, please. Wow, love that song. It's powerful. Um, so I hope that uh, you, as you came in, got to spend a little bit of time with Frank. He was here in the lobby uh, earlier, so we're excited about that. Yay. And there's like a greater than 50% chance that he will be back uh, right here next week. So we're going to pray and rooting and amen and for that, right? Let's uh, praise God for that. Hope, uh, hope, uh, hope he can. Um, in the meantime, we are uh, kind of starting a new series. If Frank doesn't come back, it will be a new series. If Frank does come back, this will be the only sermon in the series. So um, we'll just be adaptive however we go. So I want to start by uh, just pointing out that um, I think it would be great if God was a little bit like a magic eight ball. And maybe you do too. Um, If we could just ask God a question and, you know, shake him just right and turn him over and he give us the answer. You know, we, we could ask profound questions. We could ask important questions and, and he would speak to us so that we could hear what he had to say. I mean, questions like, uh, are the Cowboys ever going to win a Super Bowl again in my lifetime? And it will say, uh, outlook not good. So... <laughs> And if we don't like the answer, we can, you know, shake it again and, and try again. Um, very doubtful. So uh, maybe we, third time's a charm. I don't know. We could ask questions like, um, um, is this sermon going to be short enough that we get out of here early? And uh, not in your wildest dreams is what it says, you know, things like that. Wouldn't it be great if God could answer questions like that for us and uh, uh, speak into our lives? Or... Maybe God could be uh, a little bit how this little fellow is like, and I know you probably can't see him from where you're seated, but this is a a plastic-injected, mass-produced and marketed statue of St. Joseph. Now, I don't know what you know about St. Joseph, the father, the stepfather of Jesus, right? The husband of Mary, the carpenter. He's a great father. We see him taking some wonderful steps of faith in his life. The, the Catholic Church canonized him and made him a saint. He's a patron saint of death. He's a patron saint of the universal church. He's the patron saint of, of pregnant women. He's the patron saint of workers. He's even the patron saint of realtors. Just, I mean, he's all kinds of things. And um, as wonderful as all that is, I don't think the people who created and sell this on Amazon for $5.95, if you wanted to get you one, um, is re- are really concerned about uh, that, that spiritual aspect of him, so to speak. Um, because if you go to Amazon, and don't do it now, you can do it afterwards, because it would be kind of entertaining for you to do afterwards, I promise. Uh, go to Amazon and look up Joseph the house seller, because what you can do with St. Joseph is if you're having trouble selling your house, you can go to Amazon, and with Amazon Prime, you get free two-day shipping. You can have him at your house in no time. And the instructions say that you are to dig a hole by the for sale sign in your yard, and you're to bury him upside down. And there's some debate of whether he needs to be facing the house you're selling or facing outward toward the house that you're wanting to buy. But in any event, if you do that, guaranteed your house will sell miraculously. Andy Stanley calls this, when he talks about him, he calls it magic. It's magical. 
you know, to be able to do something like that and to make it happen. One of my favorite reviews, the fun thing to do, is to read the thousands and thousands, literally thousands of reviews of how St. Joseph had been sold on, on Amazon. One of my favorites was of a lady who um, said that they'd been having trouble selling their house for several months, and so out of desperation, they ordered St. Joseph and unbeknownst to their postal worker, two days after ordering it, thanks to Amazon Prime, the postal worker knocked on the door with the package in hand, not knowing what's inside, and said, I've been driving by your house all these years and for the last few months, seen it on sale, and I think my husband and I would love to buy it. Can we come over tonight and talk? And within a couple of days, they had signed the contract and it was done. They didn't even have to bury poor St. Joseph. They got what they wanted. You know, there's, Wouldn't it be great if God worked like that, like we could manipulate him into doing what we wanted to do? That borderlines on idolatry. Because idolatry simply is putting our faith in something else other than God. Expecting something else to provide and care and speak into our lives other than God. Now, that's the bad side of it. I think there's a little bit of a good side to it. Because I think there is a real hunger. I don't know how many people, although after preaching this message, I have had one person tell me that they know of one person who uses the magic eight ball to make decisions in their life. Not real sure about that person. But most of us don't do that. But we do pursue answers in all kinds of crazy places. We're looking for something to speak into our lives. We're looking for meaning, significance. We're looking for solutions. And that in and of itself is wonderful. It's a little bit like a, an Apostle Paul on Mars Hill moment. You remember maybe that story. The Apostle Paul was an evangelist. He was a traveling preacher, you know, in the early centuries, an apostle. So he's going out and evangelizing, missionary. Well, he has a bit of a layover in the city of Athens, Some of his traveling companions aren't able to catch up to him right away, so he's got some time in this wondrous ancient city. So what do you do with a couple of extra days to spare in a wonderful city? St. Paul does, uh, you know, the Segway tour and tours the city and checks things out, and he's amazed at all the buildings and the wonder of what he sees, but he's especially amazed at all the multitude of altars that are laid out there. Hundreds, if not thousands, of altars to all these different gods. In fact, there's even one altar in the midst of them all to, to an unknown god. And, and rather than berating everybody because they're looking for answers in all the wrong places, he says, let me tell you something. I'm amazed at your spirituality. I'm especially amazed that you have this altar to this unknown God. But you know, you may not know his name, but I know his name, and I want to tell you about this unknown God. And he begins to preach to them, and some of them hear the message of Jesus and respond to it. It was a powerful time. I think that's what's going on in our society, our culture. People are looking for answers, but they're looking in the wrong places. What we need to help them see is that the answer could come from God because God still speaks. And that's the first message in this series. God still does blank. And we're going to talk about several things unless Frank returns. But today we're talking about God still speaks. And um, we're going to do this by looking at three different passages. And we're going to draw... Two lessons and a uh, double, double dog dare you from the third one. Um, we're going to look at a passage of poetry 
And now poetry is kind of aggravating because it forces you to slow down because it, 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 it speaks to you, but it speaks to you indirectly. And on top of this being poetry, it's Hebrew poetry. And on top of it being Hebrew po- poetry, it's Hebrew prophetic poetry. And Hebrew prophetic poetry has a tendency to make you feel pathetic because it kind of, without even realizing it, you get slapped in the face as it's uh, being poetic, as it's doing that. So we're going to look at that, and we're going to see from this passage, a passage, by the way, that you may not recognize the most of it, but you will recognize a single line from it, and you'll say, oh, I've heard that. I've even said that line before. But we're going to look at it in context, and what we're going to learn is that God still speaks, but we need to learn to listen. And then we're going to look at a, a Hebrew narrative, a Hebrew story, a uh, very familiar story. You've heard it before. If it was to be made into a movie today, it would be not be a chick flick kind of movie. It would be a guy's movie because there would be all kinds of special effects that go along with this passage, and there's lots of violence and death and bloodshed and all this kind of stuff. So it's a real kind of guy's movie, this passage is. But in the midst of all of that, what we're going to learn is that sometimes when we try to hear God, we, we go about it the wrong way. And we make it more complicated than it needs to be. And then the third passage that we're going to look at is another Hebrew story. And this is a cute one. This is the story that gets told in Sunday school a lot because because there's a little boy in the story. And, you know, you just talk about little boys in Sunday school, and it's it's great. But there's a lesson to learn in this very familiar story that you, you will hear. And that lesson is how we can take the little baby steps like a little boy would, take those first steps into hearing the voice of God in our life. So that's, that's what we're going to do today. So let's, let's get started. Let's look at this first passage from Habakkuk. Habakkuk was a prophet of God, and not, there's a little, little uncertainty because he's not mentioned a whole lot in Scripture, but there's a little uncertainty of exactly when he prophesied and wrote, but somewhere, you know, 600s, 500s, because it seems to be that he's talking about the coming Babylonian uh, uh, invasion and the destruction of the temple. And so he's talking about this evil empire that's going to come and destroy the people of God, basically, carry them off into captivity. Well, he's doing that. God's sending them, Babylon, this evil empire, into their lives because they've abandoned God. They've stopped listening to God. They've begun listening to idols, idols made of wood and metal and stone. And if he was writing today, he would say, and plastic as well. And Habakkuk has some strong things to say to us about hearing God. So let's, let's look at this passage. What good is an idol carved by man or a cast image that deceives you? Because that's what idols do. They deceive you. How foolish to trust in your own creation a God that can't even talk. Contrary to like looking at the, the magic eight ball and getting an answer, we know it can't talk. That's just kind of Thing. It's a make-believe thing. But these folks were thinking that they could really talk. How foolish to trust in your own creation of God that can't even talk. And Habakkuk continues, What sorrow awaits you who say to wooden idols, Wake up and save us. And to speechless stone images who say, You say, Rise up and teach us. So you're speaking to the speechless idols. Wake up and save us. Rise up and teach us. You're doing all the talking to these idols because they're speechless. Can an idol tell you what to do? They may be overlaid with gold and silver. They may be beautiful, but they are lifeless inside. There's nothing there. And then Habakkuk says this, But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth 
be silent before him. So you get the, the contrast that Habakkuk, the prophetic poet, is laying out there. There are these idols that we're thinking we're going to get meaning and perfect, uh, per, meaning and something in our life that I just lost the word for, meaning and importance in our life. I don't know. We're going to get answers in our life from them. But the truth is they're speechless. They can't speak into our life. They cannot provide significance to us. But in contrast is Yahweh, who is in his holy temple. And the temple here, I don't think he's talking about the earthly temple because that's about to be destroyed. How pointless to talk about the temple that's about to be destroyed. I think he's talking about the heavenly temple here. Yahweh is in his temple. And the way we worship Yahweh, our first act of following him is to zip it, to shut our mouths, to be quiet, and to listen. You're so intent on listening to these idols. Why don't you try listening to Yahweh? Habakkuk says. You're so busy talking that there's no room in your life to listen. And so we miss what is significant. And let me illustrate this way um, that was done in a, a sociological experiment here just a few years ago. And many of you, if not most of you, have seen this video I'm about to show or seen one like it. And so if you have seen it, um, it's going to ask a question of you, and you're, you're, you're going to do it from your seat. It's going to ask you to do something from your seat. But if you've seen this, don't give it away. You know, you know, don't shout out the answer or anything. Let everybody else who haven't seen it, who hasn't seen it, experience. And we're going to go through this psychological experiment together, and we're going to uh, talk about it after we watch it. The video is about a minute and a half, and you just need to pay attention to what it asks you to do and do what it asks you to do. So let's, let's watch. Count how many times the players wearing white pass the ball. The correct answer is 16 passes. Did you spot the gorilla? For people who haven't seen or heard about a video like this before, about half missed the gorilla. If you knew about the gorilla, you probably saw it. But did you notice the curtain changing color or the player on the black team leaving the game? Let's rewind and watch it again. Here comes the gorilla, and there goes a player, and the curtain is changing from red to gold. When you're looking for a gorilla, you often miss other unexpected events. And that's the monkey business illusion. <laughs> so how many of you had seen this video or one like it before? few of you. Okay. And now, honestly, you're in church, so be honest. How many of you missed the gorilla in this video? Wow. A lot of us. Yes, I missed it the first time I saw it. How many of you missed the changing of the curtain and the missing player? Yeah. Isn't that incredible? It happens right in front of us. It's right there. 
but we're looking at the wrong thing. We're, we miss the unexpected, the unpredictable, and that's the nature of the God we worship. We're so busy pursuing other things and paying attention to other things, we miss when God shows up because we're not really looking for him. We have to learn to listen because God still speaks. So story number two or passage number two. Familiar story. It's a story of Elijah, the prophet. And Elijah is in the midst of a spiritual warfare, a spiritual battle. The nation of Israel has turned its back on God, following after idols, um, worshiping false gods, sacrificing babies, that sort of thing going on. There's a, a king and a queen in, of the land who is leading the nation far astray from God. King Ahab and Jezebel are leading the people away from God. This has got prophets. They have prophets all over the place. So, so, so Elijah says, let's do a spiritual battle. Let's do an okay corral kind of thing. Let's go up to Mount Carmel and let's duke it out. And so they do. And the 450 prophets are there on, on Baal's side, who happens to be the god of, of fertility, of agriculture, of weather, of storms, lightning, that kind of thing. And Yahweh, with his sole representative of Elijah. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of spectators who've gathered around to view this grudge match that's about to happen. And so Elijah gives the ball to them and says, you, you do this and let's do something that would be easy for you. Let's build an altar, place a sacrifice on it, and you call out to your God, the God of weather, and see if they'll strike lightning and ignite the, the altar for you. And so the prophets of Baal are like, yeah, that sounds great. Let's do that. And so they start doing that. And they pray and they pray and there's predictably no response. So they begin to sing and they begin to dance. They begin to do all this stuff to get God's, their God's attention. They even begin cutting themselves, trying to prove their earnestness, trying to get God's attention, sacrificing themselves on the altar of this God, trying to get him to respond and to speak into their lives, but to no avail. And so after the day goes by, Elijah says, let's do it this way. And so he builds his altar, places his sacrifice on it, prays, and then the special effects kick in and lightning from heaven strikes and it laps up all the water that Elijah had poured onto the altar just to prove how hard it was going to be, takes up the sacrifice, destroys the altar, everything. And all the spectators are standing there and they're going, wow, that's pretty impressive. We should be on God's side. So they start saying, Jehovah, Yahweh, he's God. Yahweh, he's our God. Let's follow him. You know, the crowd is kind of fickle like that. And so they start following them. And so Elijah says, you know what? We've got to get these prophets. And so they start chasing the prophets, and they chase the prophets down the side of the mountain into the valley where they slaughter all 450 of them. They kill them. I know that's kind of graphic and, and not, not something we'd want to see happen, but it's kind of a spiritual high point because God is victorious. He defeats the enemy. Well, Ahab and Jezebel hear about it. And instead of saying, wow, God's really powerful, they say, man, he killed all of our prophets. We need to kill him. So they put a contract out on his life, and they threaten to kill him. Well, he gets afraid, and he takes off running. He's just come from this great spiritual victory, but he runs. He's trying to run to the presence of God, as we will see. So this is where we pick up the story. 
He traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, most of us probably don't know Horeb. That's not a name that we're familiar with. It only appears a few times in the Bible. But I promise that you're familiar with this mountain's other name. Other than Horeb, it's also known as Mount Sinai. And Mount Sinai, you remember, was the place where Moses first heard the voice of God through the burning bush. It's also the place where Israel had gathered to receive the Ten Commandments, and they had experienced the presence of God, heard His voice, the rumbling, the thunder, the lightning, seen His glory, and it terrified them because it was so overwhelming. In fact, it terrified them so much because of the presence of God. They said, Moses, don't let God come into our presence anymore. You go up and talk to Him, and you just come back and tell us what He has to say. But if we end up in God's presence again, we could end up dead. And so that's the kind of history that happens at Mount Sinai. If you want to go someplace where God has shown up before, then you go to Mount Sinai, and that's where Elijah runs. From all the way of Mount Carmel, which is in northern Israel, all the way down south, almost to Egypt, to Mount Sinai. So he traveled for 40 days until he reached the Mount of Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night, and the word of the Lord came to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now notice that question because we're going to come back to it in just a moment. What are you doing here, Elijah? And then the passage continues. Well, Elijah replied, I've been so very jealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, put prophets to death with the sword, and I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too, he cries. And you've kind of cried like that before. I, at least I have. You remember it, when you were younger, you get in trouble at home, you know, inside, and you feel so alone. So I would go out on the back porch, and there would be Princess, my little Boston Terrier, and come lick the tears off my eyes. And I'd say, you're the only one who loves me. I just, no one understands me here, you know. That's what Elijah's doing. He's kind of crying out to God, complaining like that. And so God responds to him. And the Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, and the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled the cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And the voice of God said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And then Elijah responds, I've been very jealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. And so God responds to him by saying, Go back the way you came. Go to the desert of Damascus, and when you get there, anoint Hazahel, king of Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king of Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel, Mahola, to succeed you as a prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazahel, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. So it's tough to sometimes understand what lesson we can learn from a story like this. It, it's so remote from the life we live. It would help if uh, the Bible was written in the way we kind of write today with emoji cons, right? You know, a little smiley face when it's a good thing, a little winky face when it's a joke, or, you know, a frowny face when it's something serious. And, and, and a, a theologian named Randy Harris talks about this passage, and he said, the key to understanding this passage is to understand what to emphasize, how, how it should be read. 
particularly that question that God asks twice of Elijah. Because in Hebrew, when, when the Hebrew writer wanted to stress something, they would repeat something. And so twice, God asked this question, what are you doing here, Elijah? And so what Harris says is, is you need to figure out what word to emphasize in that. What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here, Elijah? Harris says, you need to ask the question, what are you doing here? What are you doing here, Elijah, of all places? I didn't send for you. I didn't invite you to come. I didn't call you to this mountain. What are you doing here, Elijah? I have mission work for you to do. I have purpose for your life. I've sent you to fulfill a task. What are you doing here on this mountain, Elijah? Way down here. You're supposed to be up north. What Harris says is what this passage is doing, it's taking to task the false conception of holy place and holy time. Holy place and holy time. Because sometimes we get to thinking, I'm not worthy for God to speak to me. Or if I just do it just right or go to just the right place or do it at just the right time, then God would speak to me. As if there's some more sacred holy time than other. As if there's some more sacred holy place than every other place. Let's ask the question, is there ever a place that God is not? No, he's everywhere. Is there ever a time that God is not? No, he's at all times. So all times and all places are holy. It's not a question of trying to get it just right so we can go and experience God. God will be with us wherever we're at, even when we're in the messy ministry business of life. God is there with us, wanting to speak to us. So it's not like we've got to get it just right to hear Him, as if we've got to go to church and impress people, you know, or impress God with the offerings we give, the songs we sing. Hey, I went to church four times this, this month. God ought to answer this request for me. You know, we talk about this way in uh, freedom ministry. When we do freedom ministry seminars, we talk about that God is constantly trying to speak to us and His voice is all around us no matter where we are or when we are because it's a little bit like radio waves. Radio waves are filling this room right now, everywhere. There's, there's jazz music playing in this room. There's country and Western music playing in this room. There's rock and roll playing in this room. There's talk radio in this room. There's God's favorite 80s music playing in this room, right? It's going on right here all the time. But we just have to tune in to it. And it's not just limited to this room. It can be anywhere. And we're able to tune into it and hear the voice of God. God is always speaking. We just have to listen. And listening to him is not complicated, like we've got to go to some special place at some special time to hear him, because he's all places and everywhere. So how do we tune in? How do we hear him? Well, that takes us to our third story. It's a time in which between the, the time of judges and the time of the kings in the nation of Israel, it's a desolate, dark evil time that's going on. God has been sending judge after judge to Israel to help bring them back to God, but they come back and then they fall away. And at this particular time, they're once again, they've fallen away. They're chasing after idols. They're following the wrong people. In fact, there's even a high priest named Eli that's 
leading the worship of God and his sons and his descendants, and many people are, are serving as priests in the, in the tabernacle there, but it's become corrupt and evil. Eli has become um, has turned a blind eye to the corruption that his sons are doing because his sons are doing the same things like, like stealing from the people when they come to worship or stealing from the Lord, from the offering plate, if you will. They're even, just like in today's headlines that you hear so often, they're even molesting the women that come, sexually molesting them who come. And Eli's turning a blind eye to it. He's ignoring it. But in comes this little boy named Samuel. And God is going to do something amazing through Samuel to bring his people back. He's going to ultimately use Samuel to anoint Saul as king and David as king. You know, there's going to be this great renewal that is going to eventually happen. But before we get there, we hear this story of Eli. Let's watch or read. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli in whose in those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. And that's a little ironic that he would say that because just in the chapter before, there had been a vision to Eli in which saying, hey, you've turned a blind eye to what your sons are doing. I'm going to take your uh, lineage out of the high priesthood. You're not going to be a priest anymore. I'm going to curse your, your, ancestors, your, your descendants. And so he had heard this, but he wasn't always tuned into it. The people weren't listening to God, so it was as if God was not speaking. And one night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, most likely this is a, a literal thing, literally he's going blind, but it's also kind of a spiritual thing. Eli had turned a blind eye to his sons. Eli had turned a blind eye to the, to the visions that God was sending. He wasn't seeing the way he should see as high priest of the people. So he could barely see, and he was laying down in his usual place. He was laying down kind of in his, his own place. But notice the contrast here. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. So priests in that day would, in the temple, in the tabernacle, would keep a lamp burning all night long. That was one of their priestly duties. So literally what this is saying is this is in the night. You know, the lamp had not gone out yet because dawn had not broken yet. And um, um, so the, the light is there. But it's also spiritually speaking, as dark as the world is, as many people wondering, where is God in all of this? As many people saying, there is no voice from heaven leading us and directing us. The narrator reminds us, no, there is a lamp of the Lord that is still lit. There's still hope in the land and in our lives. So the lamp of God had not yet gone out. And Samuel was lying down, not in his usual place as Eli was, but in the house of the Lord where the ark of God was. It was like he was going to that holy place, trying to be near to the very presence of God. And then the Lord called, called to Samuel, and Samuel answered, here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, here I am. You called me. And so there continues, Eli says, I didn't call you. Go back and lie down. So he went and lay down. Again, the Lord called Samuel. And Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, here I am. You called me. My son, Eli said, I did not call you. Go back and lie down. And so he does. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. A third time the Lord called Samuel. A third time it took Eli, this man of God, the high priest of the Lord, three times to recognize the voice of God. That's how blinded he was in all of this. 
A third time the Lord called out, Samuel. And Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am. You called me. And finally Eli realizes that the Lord was calling the boy. So Eli told Samuel, Go and lie down as if he called. And if he calls you, say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place, and the Lord came and stood there, calling as at the other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel said, Speak, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And the Lord said to Samuel, See, I am about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears about it tingle. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. It wasn't a question of how close Samuel was to the ark. It was a question of whether his heart was ready. If he was saying, speak, Lord, for your servant is ready to do whatever you ask. I am your servant. I'm listening. What would it be like if this became our prayer? Instead of praying to God with all of our wish list and all of our advice of how he ought to be running the world in our lives, what if we made it our prayer, speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. And then we listened. What if that became our prayer? What if tonight, before you go to bed, about the time your head hits the pillow, but before you close your eyes, your prayer is simply, speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. What if when you get up of a morning, by the time your eyes hit or, or your eyes open up, but before your feet hit the floor, you pray, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And then we went about our day filled with excitement and anticipation and eagerness and an open heart and open ears and open eyes looking for the extraordinary, the unexpected, looking for God to speak into our lives. What if we made it our habit, say for the next, pick a biblical number, 40 days, we've made this our prayer each and every day, multiple times each day. What if you prayed this each day as your hand hits the doorknob on your way out for the morning? Before you go to work, before you go to school, what if you prayed, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. What if every interaction you had with a teacher or a fellow student or with a coworker or with a neighbor, you in the midst of that ordinary stuff that goes on in life, we were praying in our heart, speak, Lord, I'm listening. What if before, when you come home at night and your hand hits that doorknob, before you enter into your door for the evening, you pray, speak, Lord, because your servant is listening. How would that impact getting the kids baths and dinner and getting them to bed and getting homework done and talking about your day with one another? How would that impact our interactions with one another if we began each one of those with, speak, Lord, I'm listening. Because here's the deal. God wants to do something so extraordinary, so unexpected, that when people hear of it, their ears will tingle. And so we can ask, Lord, do you want to do something in my life so unexpected 
that when people hear of it, their ears will tingle and the answer will always come back. Yes, I do. Without a doubt. I guarantee it. So let's make that our prayer right now as we bow together. Speak, Lord, for we, your servants, are listening. This is our prayer through Christ, our Savior, we pray. Amen. We're about to stand together and sing a song. The altar rails are open. Maybe you just want to come and spend a little bit of time just praying. Speak, Lord. And if we continue our series next week, we'll talk about more details beyond this little first baby step of praying this prayer of how we can hear God. Maybe you're here and you have not, maybe you're one of these people who have not yet begun a relationship with Jesus. I want to tell you, God is speaking to your heart. He's whispering to you right now. He's saying, I love you. I want you as my child. Invite me in. And our response should be, speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. God wants, unlike the idols that we read about earlier, God wants to rise up and to save us. And he wants to do that for you. If your heart's ready, speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. So let's stand and sing. And if you want to respond to God, I'm available up front. Pray with you to help you hear what God has to say about you. Let's sing.